I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be reading Romans chapters 9 through 12. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul deals with some issues regarding salvation of the Jews, the nation of Israel. So keep in mind that these uh, three chapters aren't typical of what we've been reading in Romans, but it deals specifically with the nation of Israel and their salvation. We see in chapter 9, we start right out with Israel's position, spiritual position before God. There's not a more thorough chapter in Scripture that more clearly defines the doctrine of God's foreknowledge, election, and predestination than this chapter right here, Romans chapter 9. Admittedly, God's attribute of omniscience is a paradox to us, but only because of our inability to conceptualize it. No conclusive discussion on the issue can be settled without the inclusion of this chapter, and I'm talking about the whole chapter. Let's begin reading with chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now, for the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul's led us through the process of sin, salvation, security, and perseverance for believers. Now, with those principles firmly established, Paul begins here a discussion of the spiritual position of Israel before God. In this chapter, he goes to great measures to show a distinction between the physical promises made to Israel and the spiritual promises made by God to Abraham's seed. That difference is not clear in the minds of many Christians today. Paul begins by expressing his great burden for his blood kinsman, Israel. That's in verses 1 through 3. Even to the point of a willingness to, if it were possible, sacrifice his own spiritual state of salvation in exchange for the spiritual safety of his Jewish kinsmen. We see that in verse 3. Here he mentions them as beneficiaries of national physical blessings, but not as beneficiaries of eternal life. He's careful to point out in verse 5 that the Messiah was born from their lineage, the lineage of the Israelites. Now, I have a little bit of a technical discussion that uh, follows in verses 4 and 5, which is better read than just listened to. Uh, where the verses say, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. And all of those I give you some cross-references so that you can understand exactly to what Paul refers here. But I'll summarize those verses by saying that these are national attributes, not spiritual attributes. You can't understand this chapter without understanding the difference. Nationally, God has promised to physically prosper Israel and its people. 
Yet that promise, now listen closely, does not invalidate the personal need for every Jew or Gentile to establish a personal spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Don't get national physical blessings confused with personal spiritual blessings. They are different in outcome. Now verse 6. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, those verses have caused a lot of struggles over the years among Bible scholars, so let's discuss them. In verses 6 through 13 here, Paul explains that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean that you have leverage with God. He specifically alludes to the fact that neither Ishmael nor Esau were included in the special blessings given to Isaac and Jacob. The promise to Abraham was specifically directed through Isaac over Ishmael, and we see that in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. And later, those specific blessings were through Jacob over Esau, which we see in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. In verse 12, Paul refers to Genesis 25:23 and quotes exactly, I mean exactly, the Septuagint of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, in verse 13. His point is that God knew and prophesied before they were ever born through which of them God would bring the physical blessings of a whole nation. And that nation is Israel, and the blessings came through Jacob, not Esau. Therefore, the physical blessings of national prosperity were not assigned to all of Abraham's descendants, nor through all of Isaac's descendants. Likewise, on the personal spiritual level, all born of Israel do not have a reservation in heaven simply because of their Jewishness. They must be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as well. That's Paul's point in this passage. The comparative use of the word hate, the Greek word meseo, that's caused many to have some concern here. Jesus used the term similarly in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he challenged would-be disciples to count the cost of discipleship as it meant forsaking family in lieu of a grueling road of service that would soon lead to the death on the cross of the discipler himself. Just as there, Paul is comparatively demonstrating that Jacob received the seed blessing of Abraham in verse 13. Esau didn't receive that blessing, based upon Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This love-hate analogy is extracted directly, without revision, from Malachi's own words as had been translated by the Old Testament Septuagint. Now let's read verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. 
For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, beginning with verse 14, Paul then deals with the that's-not-fair issue of the whole selection process. From man's perspective, if God knew before they were born which of the two, Jacob or Esau, would receive the birthright, then that really doesn't seem fair. Yet, keep in mind, God is omniscient. He knows every intricate detail of everyone's future. As it happens, he doesn't abuse that attribute like, well, like I would if I were omniscient. I'd probably use omniscience to go buy a lottery ticket. But God didn't cause Jacob to negotiate Esau out of his birthright, but he did know that it would happen in advance, even before they were born. And if you want to read more about that, uh, look at the passage on Genesis chapter 27 in my notes there. Incidentally, the King James translation of God forbid in verse 14, uh, that comes from the Greek term me genoita. It's a figure of speech widely used in 1611 that they translated God forbid. Actually, the two words there, doesn't, they don't have God in them at all. When someone during that era in the 17th century intended to express the sentiment of absolutely, positively not, they often said the words God forbid, and that's why it's translated as such in the King James Version. The Greek word, as I mentioned, for God is not actually in that phrase. And if you wonder more about that, then look at my notes on Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and you'll see more detail there. Now, Paul's working hard to make certain his readers understand the God-ordained selection-rejection process. So here we have yet another example in Pharaoh. We see him in verses 15 through 18. What caused that man to be such a stinker to God's people, Israel? Incidentally, Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19 and verse 15. In verse 17, Paul quotes Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Now, there really can be no question about what happened between Pharaoh and Israel. I've listed a bunch of verses in Exodus, beginning with Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, uh, all the way down to um, uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 8, where 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 times... 18 times it says in some form that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, it's really a good study. You need to look at that. Uh, we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did it. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, I guess you get the point when you look at those verses. Pharaoh's heart was hard toward Israel, and God was responsible for making it hard. Now, here's the explanation as I see it. God knew from creation that a man, Pharaoh, would be used as his instrument to challenge the people of God. God knows everything about the future. I mean, remember, he's omniscient. He knew that early in Pharaoh's life, he would reject the one true God and go after strange gods instead. So when it came to Israel's release, God did harden Pharaoh's heart that he might show his power to deliver, 
to the people of the nation of Israel. Even when Pharaoh's resolve weakened during the course of the plagues, it says that God still hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now let's continue reading with verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he saith in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work, and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth." And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. Okay, so let's review. We saw Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau in verses 6 through 13. Then we saw an explanation concerning Pharaoh in verses 14 through 18. Now, Paul then deals with the that's not fair issue of these situations and others in verses 19 through 29. Paul, in essence, says in these verses, I don't really understand how God's omniscience works, but I know that God is just. He points out that without omniscience ourselves, we can't really comprehend its vast implications. While it may seem unjust to us, we just defer to God's wisdom, and we know that it's not unjust because God says it's not unjust because God's a just God. Then the application of this truth. Here it is. God calls believers to salvation. Is it arbitrary? Well, many try to oversimplify omniscience, conclude that it is, but not me. While I can't mentally separate the concept of omniscience from divine selection, God can distinguish between the two. Now, that doesn't make God unfair. It just means I'm stupid. I mean, compared to God. I just know that Romans 10.13 says... For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter says in Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So who is salvation for, anyway? Well, it's for everyone. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, And he, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It just so happens that God, the God who revealed the revelation to John, outlining with great detail the events in our earth's future, he also knows already who will be saved during that time as well as who will be saved now. I can't grasp that kind of foreknowledge. I mean, can you? But I accept that God possesses that kind of foreknowledge. I mean, who really believes that the so-called Antichrist 
the beast of Revelation chapter 13, that he'll end up getting saved. Who believes that? Well, nobody who's read John's prophecy believes the Antichrist will get saved. Why? Well, it's because John says that the Antichrist will battle against Christ. Based upon my understanding of the principles of God's foreknowledge, it is my opinion that the Antichrist will be the one who will choose to reject Jesus Christ as his personal Savior at some point earlier in his life. And like Pharaoh, his heart will be hardened by God. Now, with regard to foreknowledge, there's one more point worth noting here. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 17 through 12, and other places, we see Jeremiah prophesying around 600 B.C. He's prophesying to the people in Jerusalem and Judah that they should turn back to God and avoid God's judgment. However, there's a little caveat here. This is 100 or so years after Isaiah in around 700 B.C., prophesied in Isaiah chapter 39 that Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians because they would not repent. So you see, God knew that they wouldn't repent, but nonetheless, he inspired Jeremiah, by the way, as well as Ezekiel, to extend the invitation to those people anyway to avoid the judgment of God. Could they have repented? Well, yeah, they could have repented, but God knew they wouldn't just as he knew that Pharaoh wouldn't repent. And there we see foreknowledge at work. Now, with that being said, I'm fully convinced that God prefers to save every person on the face of the earth. We see that in Romans 10, 13, 2 Peter 3, 9, and 1 John 2, 2. But many, let's face it, will decline salvation. And God knows who they are. So here's the deal. I don't know who they are, my responsibility is to regard everyone I meet as a candidate for salvation. With all that explanation, some are still looking over chapter 9, and, well, they're still scratching their heads. For you, may I make this plea. Can we just accept it as a natural mind paradox and just move on? Can we just acknowledge that this whole notion of what it would be like to have omniscience as God does can we just acknowledge it as a brain exploder to our human four-dimensional minds? There are some concepts that simply can't be fully comprehended without the mind of God. This issue of foreknowledge, election, and predestination is simply one of those concepts. Imagine how Jeremiah must have felt when he was pleading with the people to turn to God, but knew from Isaiah's prophecy that it just wasn't going to happen. Yet, Jeremiah, he didn't miss a beat in his efforts to go and preach the message of repentance to Israel. In verses 24 through 26 here, Paul refers to Hosea chapter 2 verse 23, which actually deals with the reversal in Israel's status from being called not my people in Hosea 1 9 to being restored. But in verse 25, Paul broadens the application to include Gentiles. Then in verses 27 to 29, Paul turns to Isaiah chapter 10 verse 22 where the prophecy assures, and I quote, yet a remnant of them shall return. In this, Paul expresses thankfulness for the minority of Jews who will embrace the gospel and be saved. Paul tops it off with a quotation regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, taken from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Now let's continue reading with verse 30. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? 
But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So finally, here in verses 30 through 33, Paul points out that Israel has stumbled over the concept of righteousness attained through faith. They just didn't embrace it. The passage Paul quotes in verse 33 is a combination of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, with regard to the gospel being a stumbling block to the Jews. He continues the discussion of Israel's spiritual shortcomings in the next chapter, chapter 10. So to sum it up, chapter 9, I mean, here's the essence of what Paul has just expressed. We don't have the mind of God, not Paul, not us. Therefore, as hard as we try, without the attribute of omniscience possessed only by God, we'll always reason that there seems to be something a little bit unfair about the workings of God's sovereignty. Paul's point to be taken in chapter 9 is that our failure to understand, well, that's not God's fault, it's our fault. Therefore, we'll just need to trust God that his judgment of the saved and condemnation of the lost is a completely fair proposition. In chapter 10, we see that Israel needs salvation. Verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, Paul's very clear here. Israel is, for the most part, a nation of people in a state of rejection with regard to Jesus as the Messiah. Their attempts at righteousness are misdirected, as he points out in verse 2, when it says, They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Paul expresses a great burden for his fellow Israelites because they do not realize that righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, just as he said he would in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Christ said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now we see in verses 5 through 13 that the message of salvation is universal. Verse 5, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now with regard to Old Testament law, Paul quotes Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 
here in verse 5 of Romans chapter 10, and that's regarding the keeping of the commandments. Then he moves on to grace. Salvation's easy. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 in this passage, in verses 6 through 8, where there he shows the simplicity of just, just obeying God. These verses proclaim that it's not about what a person can do, but simply trusting Christ as Savior. That's what constitutes salvation. Now, some simple action item verses are found here, beginning with verse 9. Salvation is a personal born-again experience. We also see that in 1 Peter 1.23 and John chapter 3, verses 3-7. through 7. And salvation is a supernaturally achieved process when one experiences the transformation of the Holy Spirit as a result of calling upon the name of the Lord in prayer for salvation. Prayer for salvation is not a daily activity, and, and it needs to only be done one time. When a person is born again as a result of a salvation prayer, he becomes a member of God's family, which we call the body of Christ. It's not individual church membership, but a spiritual entrance into a covenant relationship with God. That's what is eternal. And it's all done by an act of faith in trusting Jesus Christ as Savior in prayer, one time and once and for all. Now, verses 9 and 10 merit some additional explanation here. Keep in mind that this is a challenge to the Jews. You must not overlook the mission of chapters 9 through 11. Remember, I said they're Jewish chapters. It's to deal with the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Their lack of faith, the Jews, included two denials on their part, and here they were. Number one, the confession of Jesus as Lord, and number two, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus as Lord here, without question, refers to Jesus' identification as the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Now, if you'd like to get a better understanding of the dual meaning of the Greek word for Lord, then click on the link there in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, and you'll get uh, an explanation there. Now, the reason I make that distinction is just to give you a little bit of an overview of what you can find if you clicked on that link. The uh, word Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, which means master, or is the equivalent of the Old Testament Jehovah. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for Lord, as in master, was Adonai, and the Hebrew word for for the God of the Jews is what we sometimes refer to as Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, in this passage right here, I'm telling you that uh, I'm confident that in this passage, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord is talking about Jehovah or Yahweh, in other words, the God of the Jews. Now, that point, by the way, can be proved from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. Secondly, the resurrection from the dead validates the eternal power and Godhead of Jesus Christ. Only a living Jesus can one day serve as the Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So this very specific invitation to salvation here includes two issues that were big problems, big stumbling blocks, big issues of denial for unbelieving Jews. Here they are again. Jesus as the Jehovah or Yahweh of the Old Testament, that's number one. And number two, the fact that Jesus resurrected, enabling him to fulfill messianic promise. Paul and Peter often customize their invitations for their particular audience, as Paul does right here. Paul then provides a near quote, a near quote of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 and verse 11, 
And he quotes exactly, as I mentioned earlier, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, when he says in verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Per our earlier discussion regarding this, the dual meaning of the Greek word for Lord, the Hebrew word Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in Joel 2.32, which means that it's translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. As a matter of fact, Romans 10.13 is an exact quotation of the Septuagint of Joel 2.32. So we know that this is a Jehovah reference. So specifically, let's look at those verses again then. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, Lord meaning Jehovah Yahweh, Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So, here's what we know. We know that the two stumbling blocks for the Jews was, was Jesus Jehovah. Well, Paul says, Jews, if you're going to be saved, you've got to acknowledge that. And number two, was Jesus supernaturally resurrected from the grave? Well, Jews, if you're going to be saved, you must acknowledge that he was. So we see then, beginning with verse 14, that it's a mission field. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went unto all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that ask not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Well, the message of salvation must be heard, verse 14 says so, as Paul then asked three rhetorical questions, and a fourth in verse 15. Paul then answers these questions with a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, in verse 15 there regarding the pleasure God receives when someone carries the gospel to another person. He then points out that Isaiah had prophesied a rejection of the gospel by Israel when he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, there in verse 16 of this passage. Verse 17 is key. It says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I just love the addition that Hebrews 4.12 adds to this concept of faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here's what Hebrews 4.12 says. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's what those two verses mean. Now listen closely. God's word is an offensive weapon. People come to trust Christ as a result of hearing the Word of God. It doesn't matter what people believe about the Word of God. Use it anyway. It's the supernatural tool of God that brings a person to a faith relationship with God through Christ. In verse 19, Paul quotes from the Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, 
where there he demonstrates that it's no surprise that Israel has rejected the Christ. He then quotes again from Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, regarding this rejection in verses 20 and 21. Hey, is this passage rich in Judaism or what? I mean, just look at all the Old Testament quotations packed into chapters 9 and 10. These two chapters are designed to show that Israel had their chance, but just as was prophesied, they passed on it. That brings us to Romans chapter 11. So what about those promises to Israel anyway? Verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. Paul answers a question here with a lesson from history. Even though Israel was chosen of God as the people through whom God would manifest his glory, what is their condition now? Abandoned? Well, no. He cites the deprivation of Israel during Elijah's tenure as God's prophet. We find that story over in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1-18. through 18. Paul points out that God preserved a meager 7,000 righteous in Israel among all the idolaters in Elijah's day. Even so, God has preserved Israel through a few saved-by-grace Jewish believers, and that was in Paul's day. Now, two verses of clarity need to be viewed very closely here as Paul compares the believing remnant Jews of his day to those of Elijah's day. And those are verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11 here. He says, Even so at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace, otherwise work is no more work. I like those two verses. Well, here's the big question, verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In other words, the Jews looked for the Messiah. He came, but only a few received Jesus, while the rest were blinded, just like Pharaoh back in chapter 9, as we saw it a few moments ago. Paul then, in verse 8, weaves together two passages, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, and Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, so as to provide examples from two periods of the same kind of rejection in Israel's history. In verses 9 and 10, he tops it off with a quote from David in Psalm 69:22 regarding this snare to the Jews. Now, answer this question for me. 
How can Paul be so very, very clear about the fact that grace does not mix with works as a basis for salvation, but Christians today are still mixed up on the subject? I mean, why is it that many teach that salvation is by grace, but something besides faith is required to consummate the deal? Well, why is it that many teach that salvation is by grace, but some work must be done in order to preserve that salvation? In light of Paul's adamant comments about grace and faith not mixing, how can people attempt to modify God's plan? I mean, just quote them, Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. If it's grace, by the way, and it is, then it simply can't have anything to do with works because they just don't mix. And then in chapter 11, beginning with verse 11, we have an illustration from horticulture. Verse 1. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell, severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, in this passage, Paul proposes an interesting analogy of the Gentiles being grafted in after the fact. His point is that while many Jews did not pursue God, Gentiles have been raised up and grafted in to become part of God's family of believers. Now we're all blessed by grace through the shed blood of the sacrifice Jesus Christ made on the cross. Whether the Jews like it or not, God's favored folks are now those who have trusted Jesus Christ by faith. I've included a note from the Rari Study Bible on this issue. You can find it there by looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. So Paul emphasizes that it's not too late for the Jews to turn to Christ and accept, thus being grafted back in themselves. Now we have a couple of very interesting verses that talk about a fullness verses 25 and 26. Verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In these two verses we see some prophecy unfolding from the Apostle Paul himself. He's already told us about Israel's blindness with regard to the gospel message. Now he addresses the length of this rejection on their part. And he says that rejection will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The Greek word for Gentiles here is ethnos. It's frequent reference to non-Jewish people in the New Testament. Verse 26 goes on to further identify what happens when this fullness has indeed taken place. It says, all Israel shall be saved. Paul makes reference to some Old Testament passages to validate his point. He mentions Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, and Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9. Those are verses that project Israel's return to God as a national entity when the Messiah will reign. That makes identification of the fullness of the Gentiles, well, that makes it easy. It's after Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, when that's the end of the Battle of Armageddon. It's at that point, the end of the Battle of Armageddon, that the millennial reign begins with only saved people inhabiting the earth. The rest, by the way, will have been wiped out in the battle, and the Messiah will be reigning over Israel and the world. This is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Out with Gentile domination, in with Jewish Messiah domination, as in the fullness of the Gentiles having been completed. If you'd like to see more specifics on this, look at my notes under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled The Davidic Covenant, or you can just click on the link right here on today's reading. From the beginning of the millennium forward, all Israel will enjoy salvation under the terms of the new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The rebellion that takes place at the end of the millennium found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 appears to consist only of Gentile nations. No Jews are specified in that passage. Then we see in verses 27 through 29 that a promise is a promise. Verse 27, For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance." So here Paul explains that God made a promise to Israel that he absolutely must keep. Verse 27 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 21, which is continued from the preceding verse. They've positioned themselves as enemies of the gospel, but nonetheless, God made a promise, a covenant, to them as a nation anyway. Then we see an oft-misused verse, verse 29, when it says, "...for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance." Now, this verse actually says that with God, a promise is a promise. When God says he'll do something, he cannot fail to do it. He promised to restore Israel. He can't fail to restore Israel. He promised. So let's be clear about the fulfillment of the promise God made to Israel. God promised to restore the throne of David. It just so happens that this prophecy will be fulfilled with messianic rule at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we see in verses 30 through 36 that the tables are reversed. Verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, 
Even so, have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. O oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory for ever. Amen. Well, we see a role reversal in verses 30 through 32 here. In the past, the Jews were favored by God, and not the Gentiles. However, today, Gentiles have embraced the gospel, and we're praying for the salvation of the Jews. Does this changing of roles seem kind of funny to you? Well, in verses 33 to 36, Paul expresses just that sentiment, leading him to conclude, and here's what he says, and his, meaning God, and his ways past finding out. That's not really an original thought with Paul. He's really gleaning from Isaiah's prophecy to Israel in Isaiah chapter 55. There, Isaiah prophesies regarding the appeal that will be made by the Messiah to the Gentiles for salvation. The millennium will not be inhabited by only Jewish people, but by all the righteous coming out of the tribulation, Jew or Gentile. And then we come to chapter 12. I love these two verses, the first two verses. We see here that a living sacrifice is better than a dead one. Verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, here in chapter 12, we're back from a three-chapter trip down memory lane with the God-rejecting Jews. Paul makes a contrast here. The Jews were still into making burnt sacrifices of innocent animals, even though the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, had been made already on the cross. Believers are to present their own bodies, not that of an innocent animal, as living sacrifices, bodies that are committed to God's service. How? Well, verse 2 says that this is done when we stop conforming to the world and let the transforming power of the Holy Spirit direct our lifestyle, as as it says, living sacrifices. I have a saying that at least amuses me with the conciseness. Here it is. The only problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. By that I mean that many Christians go through periods of their lives when they're completely committed to God's service only to find months or perhaps years later that they've backed off from that commitment. When Paul says in verse 2, and be not conformed, he's talking about a continuing relationship with God as a living sacrifice, which, by the way, sustains a continuing attitude towards our world order from God's perspective. Now, just remember the contrast. Observant Jews killed a sacrifice as an offering to God. On the other hand, committed Christians present themselves to God as not dead sacrifices, but living sacrifices. Now, verses 3 through 8, we see that sometimes you can just be too proud. Verse 3, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one member is one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Paul deals with the diversity of the spiritual gifting among believers in this passage. In my opinion, these gifts in verses 6 through 8 have been way overtaught by teachers over the years. Even I have spent two successive Sunday morning messages in the past just teaching these three verses. While it's interesting to peruse the list of gifts here and then begin to assign them to our friends and loved ones, Paul's main point of emphasis here is that different believers exercise their faith in Christian service in several diverse ways. He presents this list to show those diverse ways and to prevent one believer from thinking that he's somehow more important to the body of Christ than another. Let me emphasize that these gifts of the Spirit are not equivalent to personality tendencies or temperaments. These gifts represent the service a believer renders when, now listen closely, he renders when he is full of the Holy Spirit and therefore led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I give you some detail on verses 6 through 8 here with the prophecy, the ministry, the teaching, the exhortation, the giving, the ruling, the mercy. I give you some detail and some explanation on each of those points in the written notes. And you may want to just take a look at those in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, but I'm not going to cover them here in the podcast. These uh, have often been referred to as motivational gifts. In other words, what a believer is motivated to do by the Holy Spirit. The gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 have often been classified as manifestation gifts. Their purpose and place are different. For perspective, you may want to take a look at the gifted people of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 also. If you'd like a complete view of spiritual gifting, both 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, both of those passages should be studied along with these three verses in Romans chapter 12. And then we see some positive believer attributes in verses 9 through 21. Verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So, what is it you look like? What do you look for? 
in a believer when he's led by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, besides the gifts of verses 6 through 8, certain attributes are going to identify Spirit-led believers. Now, another passage over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. This is what we see in a believer who is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. When Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when those attributes are working in a believer's life, the challenges of verses 9 through 21 here in this passage are, well, really not challenges at all. The Holy Spirit takes control and overcomes them. Inversely, however, show me a professing Christian struggling with the admonitions of verses 9 through 21, and I'm going to tell you, they are really suffering spiritually in their lives with no leadership of the Holy Spirit. When a believer exercises good spiritual hygiene, the pesky attributes of our old nature are subdued by the Holy Spirit's power. Now, what are these actions of spiritual hygiene? Well, it's simple, really. When you read your Bible and pray and fellowship with believers, the church is a great place for that, by the way, and have an involvement in ministry that results in the sharing of faith, if you do those things regularly, then victory was just fall into place in your Christian life. And the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, those will come naturally. And the attributes we see here in verses 9 through 21, those are natural too. Now, I've written an article entitled How to Develop Good Spiritual Health. You can click here on the link if you're looking at the written notes, or you can go to the topic section of BibleTrack.org and click there on the article entitled How to Develop Good Spiritual Health. Now, in the written notes, I provide some detail for verses 9 through 21 regarding those uh, admonitions. And if you're interested, just take a look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org. But all those attributes fall into place. I mean, they come naturally when you are led and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.